Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I'm joined this week by Christine Kim and Saul Kadir from the Galaxy Digital Research team. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, how's it going? And I'm also joined by Bimnet Abibi, one of Galaxy Digital's top traders. And um, this week, we're going to talk about the Board Apes Yacht Club, a very disruptive but interesting NFT mint, uh, caused a lot of issues on the Ethereum network uh, last weekend. We're going to unpack that uh, with Christine and Saul. We're also going to talk about yet another outage for the Solana network and discuss perhaps what it means um, for the future of that network and, and other developments um, in that ecosystem. And then I'm going to run through a little bit of, of a report that I published last week on the venture scene in the crypto and blockchain ecosystem. Um, but before we got dive into those three big stories, uh, let's kick it over to Bimnet, uh, our friend at Talk Markets and um, the Fed today. The FOMC announced a 50 bips rate hike, uh, widely expected by the market, Bim. But you were watching closely and, and watching markets' reactions. Um, what's your take on it, and 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 how did the market uh, react? So it was an incredibly sort of dovish um, FOMC, uh, particularly uh, relative to, to expectations. The the main sort of focus for, for the market was with respect to uh, the possibility of, of 75 basis point rate hikes uh, going forward. Um, and Powell uh, pretty much, you know, during his uh, press conference took 75 basis points off the table for, for, for the next two meetings. Um, and so right now, you know, the market is now expecting uh, 50 basis points uh, for for the next two FOMC meetings. You know, right after the statement came out, you know, the market has started to price in a 50% probability of of a 75 basis point hike in, in June. Um, and so, just just the fact that he took 75 basis points off off the table um, was viewed, you know, pretty favorably by the market. Now, you know, I think that the Fed is in a very interesting, you know, sort of predicament, um, you know, for for a number of reasons. You know, they one, you know, as, as they stated themselves, really, um, you know, with respect to inflation, only have control over the demand side of things. They have no ability to, you know, impact commodity prices, no ability to to change supply chains and, and no ability to, you know, impact things like, you know, the China shutdown and, you know, the conflict in, in Ukraine. Right. So the, the only way they can get to price stability, which is one of their, you know, two stated ob- ob- objectives, um, is really to, to cause demand to slow. Right. So now the, the question becomes, you know, how do you uh, slow demand to the point where, where inflation you know, declines and, and gets to your sort of longer run goal of two percent without really hampering uh, the growth in, in, in the economy and without causing a, a, a severe uh, recession? Now, you know, depending on, on who you talk to, a lot of people will tell you that, you know, the Fed's task is is impossible. There is no way to get inflation down to, to reasonable levels without, you know, materially harming the economy. Now, you know, Powell and and and, and sort of you know, the Fed members would, would disagree on the stance that uh, the U.S. consumer is, is fairly healthy right now. You know, the the consumer you know savings rate or or, or savings balances are, are fairly high. You know, spending's robust. The the job market is, is still hot. You're not not seeing you know lots of, of of layoffs. So you know they think that the economy is resilient enough to to handle um, much higher interest rates and for a you know a, a longer period of time. In addition, you know they think that you know they probably think that you know the, the recent appreciation of, of the dollar will, will, will probably help you know sort of tame inflation. And so you know that's really the the balance that the, the Fed is 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 trying to to strike. Now, you know, I think most of the people listening to the podcast are probably most interested in, you know, why the, 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 the you know, S&P or NASDAQ is up 3% today. Why is, you know, ETH, you know, testing, you know, uh, 3,000 and Bitcoin, you know, testing 4,000. You know, a lot of these events really come down to positioning um, and, and sort of expectations. Um, and going into this, you know, equities were, were trading, you know, close to the lows, you know, you've had some some liquidation events in in, in crypto, and a lot of alts were, were sort of um, trading close to their lows. So most people had generally reduced um, the risk, and and risk appetite was, was fairly low going into this event. Um, and also, you know, positioning in, in the dollar w- was also pretty stretched. You know, people had gotten very bulled up on the dollar. You know, expecting you know 75 basis point hikes. You know, the you know, 95 billion in, in, in balance sheet runoff eventually, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, you went into the, this, you know, event with 
lots of shorts in, in stocks, crypto, um, fixed income, and you know long dollar positioning, and essentially all of that sort of started to unwind um, after you know or during the, the the press conference, right? And so the path of least resistance was was for people to to take off this positioning, and and that's why you sort of had the the market reaction you've had now. Now looking at sort of you know what the next order sort of reactions are, you know I think you know what folks you know need to be sort of most concerned with is is sort of the data, right? The Fed is really um, a data-dependent um, sort of agency, right? And so I think what, what people should most focus on is, is where is inflation going to be six months from now? Where is unemployment going to be six months from now? And my general guess is that, you know, the supply chain stuff does not slow down, that, you know, inflation remains persistently high, um, and unemployment, you know, probably starts to tick higher, but nowhere to the point where, where the Fed actually gets concerned, right? And so what is the Fed going to do with that data set? You know, my thinking is that, you know, given sort of the, the press conference where, where, where Powell, you know, officially, you know, made it pretty clear that inflation is now the number one goal of, and taming inflation is now the number one goal of the Fed, right? And so in that context, I think if you see data, you know, with respect to inflation, still super high, you know, three to six months from now, um, and unemployment really not that, you know, inching that much higher, I think, you know, you could see the Fed take a, a much more aggressive stance because at the end of the day, inflation, you know, like the Fed said, is something that impacts everybody. A hundred percent of people, um, you know, feel inflation because a hundred percent of people, you know, spend money. People need to eat food, you know, need to pay for, for gasoline, need to pay for, for rent, etc. You know, versus something like unemployment in contrast, right, like 5% of the labor force is, is unemployed or right now it's 3.6%. So, you know, unemployment, you don't really feel as much versus inflation is an everyday, every person phenomenon. So it's pretty clear that that is what the, the Fed is, you know, trying to address, you know, primarily. And if the data starts to go, you know, as, as I expect, which is, you know, persistently high inflation, I think you're going to see that the Fed start to, to get more aggressive. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll take a pause. Um, yeah, this is great. Um, Bam, I mean, the it's hard not to sort of chuckle if you think about the whipsaw that we've been on with monetary policy over the last two years, right? We had the largest monetary base expansion and 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 increase in, in sort of, lo- you know, the fastest loosening um, basically in, you know, Federal Reserve history following the COVID outbreak and then, you know, the sort of March 2020 institution of lockdowns. Um, and now we're, you know, and, and now we've seen inflation at its highest level since the 1970s. And and we're sort of at, at the sort of most uh, um, egregious, not egregious, uh, the, the most um, aggressive um, tightening posture that we've seen in, in decades as well. And and you talked about that, that sort of that can can they land the plane here on reducing inflation without leading the economy into a recession, right? And that that's a very, very, you know, thin needle to, to pass through very tight, um, you know, sort of window that they, that they have from a policy standpoint. Um, you said most people don't think it's possible. Um, and it also sounds like you think in the, uh, absence of, you know, significantly reduced inflation, um, you know, you, you think that that 75 bips becomes, a, you know, more plausible later in the year, um, do you think that that can, you know, if we get to that point, doesn't it feel like the the broader economy is probably in in a, in, in pretty big trouble? Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I genuinely dislike talking about recessions, but you know, that's a, a very real um, scenario, and you know, I think you know what what people really need to you know sort of focus on is is, is the world is a completely different place than than what it was you know three to four years ago, right? Like globalization is, is less of a thing. Like inflation is, is more of a function of, you know, what, you know, domestic policies, right? Like people are, are sort of, economies are going to be more insulated than ever, et cetera. And so I think that that means that, you know, you, you're not, you, you're going to have to forcefully fight inflation if you see it. And, and there's really no possible way to forcefully fight it, given the tools that the Fed currently has, without causing, you know, material, you know, damage to, to the, the economy. You know, if mortgage rates go from, go to 7 8%, like, people will stop buying houses, right? If, you know, rents get too high, like, people will, you know, move away and, you know, people will con- do less construction, right? If food, you know, 
gets too high, like, you know, people are not going to spend as much on, on, you know, uh, you know, going to the mall, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that re- leads to sort of a, a spiraling effect. And so it's very hard to, you know, imagine a scenario where, you know, tightening, raising interest rates, re- removing liquidity from the market, you know, via balance sheet runoff doesn't have, you know, some impact on growth. And people that look at the data, you know, tell you that it's, it's, it's practically, you know, statistically impossible not to have, um, you know, material, you know, sort of downside impact on, on, on growth if you do what the, the Fed is, is currently planning on, on doing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it is quite a rock and a hard place the Fed finds themselves in. Um, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned, obviously, uh, this podcast comes out on Friday morning. We're recording this on Wednesday, shortly after the FOMC uh, meeting in Powell's press conference. Um, digital assets are up big. Bitcoin's up five six percent. ETH is yeah. up five six percent. I mean, do you think um, this kind of buoyancy, um, you know, on the back of what was expectations that were met, um, largely met, and that the sort of the, the the really aggressive stuff temporarily taken off the table? Do you think we're in for a, a near term sort of rally in, in in risk and growth assets, or is this going to be something people fade over the next couple of weeks? In your view, you know, I I, I think. Uh... We're gonna be, you know, in, in still relatively volatile markets. Um, you know, I'm I'm inclined to think that the path of least resistance is higher for for crypto. Um, I'm not necessarily as sure about uh, U.S. equities, right? Like when you have, you know, prices of, of of raw materials increasing like they do, sort of uncertainty around, you know, supply chains, etc., like rapidly rising wages. Um, that really does lead to material um, margin compression for 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 U.S. companies. Um, you can't pass through, um, you know, a forty percent increase in the cost of making a car to your consumers. Like you can try, but odds are that's going to lead to to margin compression. In addition, you know, when you're when you're removing liquidity from the market, you know, via balance sheet runoff, you know, you know, people start to think more about about valuations and. You know, think about you know cash flows and stuff, and so you know you've seen a sort of a reassessment of valuations already in tech, and I think that's probably going to continue. Uh, but with crypto in particular, and and you know I really want to talk about Bitcoin here. Um, you know, Bitcoin in, in my head has has always been you know somewhat a function of Fed credibility, right? Central bank credibility, not not just domestically, but but globally as well. And when you have a Fed that you know for over a year, year and a half. You know, tells you that inflation is is transitory. It's not something you should be concerned with. It's supply chain that is you know going to resolve itself over time, and that doesn't happen, right? And then you have a Fed today that that comes out and says that there's a good probability of of a soft landing, right? Like to me, you know that you know does not inspire confidence in the Fed. And when you know central banks lose lose credibility. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin is, is probably the, the natural answer to that outcome, right? Like, yep. if I think that the Fed is, is trapped and, you know, they're politically motivated and or, you know, they, they don't want to tighten financial conditions too aggressively because, they, they, you know, they don't want people to get laid off, etc. They're just going to continue to, the, you know, print money. You're going to debase the currency so that you can pay the debt. You know, all of those things um, in, in my head, you know, sort of lower the, the credibility of, of the Fed. And I think it's it's you know, very natural for, for Bitcoin to, to outperform in an environment like that. Um, and I can't think of a, of a macro person that isn't thinking about the Fed's credibility right now, right? It, it is the standalone sort of most credible central bank in, in the world right now. Um, it, you know, if you just take a look at, you know, what the ECB is doing, the BOJ, like, I mean, the BOJ has, is, like, is still stuck in the same monetary policy they were in you know, pre this in inflation crisis, right? The ECB is having a hard time getting off of negative rates, right? And so in that context, you know, the the, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve is, is sort of, you know, one of the few central banks that, that is, is trying to reclaim the, you know, credibility. And so if they start to lose it, you know, I, I, I would think that, you know, the Bitcoin, you know, tends to outperform. Now with ETH, I mean, you guys are going to get into it, you know, later on in this podcast, but, you know, the activity that that's going on, you know, whether it's DeFi, NFTs, gaming, uh, I mean, the, the, the future potential is there. And if you're in a, in a risk environment where, um, you know, stocks aren't doing too terribly, 
right? Like people see where, where the future is growing and there's an, tons of cash on the sidelines that's looking to invest in the future, uh, whether it's the future of finance, entertainment, gaming. And so, you know, I think that, you know, Ethereum and, and the rest of crypto can also do well. Um, in addition, it's also worth noting there is a wealth effect that the Bitcoin doing well. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about, about crypto, um, less optimistic about equity markets um, and less optimistic about, you know, increased Fed credibility. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it has been a wild time um, it, it, across, a, you know, a range of issues, but the, it's been incredible to watch the sort of, um, you know, whipsaw nature of monetary policy. And, um, you know, let, let's uh, we've gotten we'll keep coming back to it. And um, it's going to it obviously affects everything. Thank you, BIMnet, uh, for those comments and insight on the Fed and markets, uh, as always. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Up next, let's talk about the Board Ape Yacht Club. Uh, the apes, they're bored, they have yachts, they park them at a club. And uh, this is one of the most valuable NFT projects created by Yuga Labs. They also have derivatives like uh, the Mutant Apes and the Kennel Club. And they also acquired the IP for the oldest or one of the oldest and, and most valuable um, NFT collections, CryptoPunks, as well as MeBits from Larva Labs uh, a few months ago. So Yuga Labs very much in the driver's seat of the NFT marketplace when it comes to valuable uh, PFP collections. They had a mint for NFTs uh, for land in their forthcoming metaverse called Other Side, on the, and, it, and it went live on the Ethereum network, uh, not the, the metaverse, but the mint uh, last Saturday. Um, and that would be big news um, by itself, given the importance of BAYC to the NFT marketplace and ecosystem overall. But the story really evolved uh, and became you know, interesting in other ways because of the massive amount of interest and congestion caused uh, by this mint on the Ethereum network. Um, fees were uh, on an on a average basis that day higher than they've ever been on Saturday gas prices. Um, and I think over $176 million was paid uh, in gas uh, fees by Ethereum users that day, a large part of it, if not most of it, uh, certainly most of it caused by uh, this mint for the other side, other deed NFTs. Um, I'm joined uh, by Christine and Saul from Galaxy Digital Research. Saul, if you could give us an overview of uh, the mint and what happened, and then uh, let's take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So... As you guys probably remember, Yuga did an airdrop of this token called ApeCoin back in March, and they gave this ApeCoin to existing holders of their NFT. So if you had an ape, a mutant, or a kennel, plus an ape or a mutant, you had to have both matching. It doesn't have to be the same ID, but you needed them. Uh, basically, the point is you got free ApeCoin. And this ended up being, I think at the time, approximately 150,000 US dollars worth of coin were airdropped to each um, board ape holder and about a six of that for the mutants. So pretty sizable amount of money. Uh, and since then, the price of ape has increased. Um, but really the point of ape was Yuga wanted to use this as a currency for their future mints and interactions with the universe they're building. And so they're building this metaverse. It's called Other Side. And this past Saturday, this is very hyped. Uh, they actually did perform the mint for the other side metaverse. Uh, the way it was originally supposed to work, which they canceled at the last minute, was it was going to be a Dutch auction that you had a certain amount of ape coin. It would start at some high price. I think people thought it was going to be 600 ape coin and would gradually go down until someone bought the plot. Um, instead, at the last minute, they decided to make this a fixed price of 305 ApeCoin per plot of land. And they added some additional measures because everyone knew this would be a big mint, but they thought it wouldn't be too bad because one, they had a requirement that every wallet that minted was KYC'd and they closed the KYC on April 1st. So if you didn't remember to KYC your wallet um, after April 1st, and I was one of those people, you could not mint at all. And so this is almost like a full month between that KYC and the actual mint happening. So they had that. They had a maximum of two mints per KYC wallet. And then they had this pretty high price, 305 ApeCoin at the time of the mint was around $6,000, which is on the very high end for any sort of NFT mint, even a Yuga Labs one. So all of these factors together, uh, theoretically, one would think it wouldn't be too sort of uh, massive of an inflow of traffic. Uh, but all of us were wrong. And so what ended up happening was it was a huge 
uh, gas store, which Christine will talk about the, the metrics around that. But ultimately, from the user's perspective, people end up spending a lot of, of their spare ETH on failed transactions. Transactions weren't going through uh, the prices of these land. Uh, like the actual secondary market price rather uh, tanked, as well as the price of ApeCoin also dropped pretty considerably from its highs of the 20s into the teens. And uh, ultimately, though, the, the Mint did sell out. Yuga made a lot of money on both the Mint and on from secondaries, uh, because remember, they, they get a royalty from every sale. Um, and yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a very loud uh, event, uh, and uh, both from an Ethereum perspective, from an NFT perspective, um, highlighted a lot of issues, but also highlighted kind of like a lot of the success that you guys still been able to manage so far. Very crazy. Um, it, we've seen some of the charts. I mean, and and we'll share some of these in our newsletter that comes out uh, today, Friday. Um, but just on on the gas that people were paying to get into this mint is just truly unprecedented. Um, you know, I, I don't know where we want to take this first. Maybe I'll just let Christine hop in and offer some thoughts on on Ethereum and, and its usage for for applications like this and, and drops of the scale. Yeah, definitely. So just to give some context on numbers of like how fees, how much fees soared on Ethereum, um, the prior high for average fees per day is around, was around $68. And on Saturday, the average fees shot up to $200. Um, and the number of failed transactions that um, was caused by this other deeds NFT mint, um, there was over 10,000 that failed and a reported over $4 million in, in failed transaction fees that Yuga Labs had said that they would refund to, to users. Um, and in context with the 14,000 that was failed and, and the sheer amount of, of money that was lost from users who weren't able to successfully mint, there were over 29,000 successful mints of the other deeds token um, and um, over $60,000, over 60,000 in ETH that was paid uh, just from, from gas alone. Um, so that kind of gives like context wise um, in terms of numbers, how how significant of, a, of an on-chain event this was on Ethereum. Um, and I personally, when I think about how, how this, this um, auction went down, um, there were a number of ways in which the, this kind of activity could have been avoided, this kind of congestion on the chain could have been avoided. However, um, the fact that this, that the majority of the bidding happened through gas um, and the fact that the Ethereum network was able to um, recover so quickly from those hours of high activity back to you know, a stable um, fee market, I think is such a, it, it's such a affirmation of how Ethereum as a network is robust enough to handle this kind of activity and for it not to damage the network as much as say um, congestion on another chain like Solana, I'm sure we'll talk about later in this episode. Um, I think it's, it's quite important that we recognize Ethereum was able to sustain this kind of activity and be able to recover in a, in a decentralized censorship resistant way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Honestly, I mean, the, there were a lot of people dunking on Ethereum for, you know, ha the fees that people saw during this event. Um, they were transitory, uh, those fee levels. I mean, in fact, I think when I, you know, pulled up Twitter that night um, to start looking and people were pointing out, I, you know, I, I knew the mint was happening that day. I had seen that, but I wasn't sure what time, right? And I had seen people were like, oh my God, $6,000 for, for gas was just paid or whatever. And by the time I, I went and looked, it was already back to like average normal rates. So it was quick. Um, and I think that's a large part of that is a result of EIP 1559, right? Yes. EIP 1559 was very central to remaining communication to to trickle down to users simply because it's it's a 
what was before EIP-1559 was basically a blind auction system um, where you would test out your transactions, put in a fee, um, maybe it's too high, maybe it's too low, but kind of like learn as you go. Um, but through EIP-1559, there's this automatic suggested rate that the network um, calculates for you. So yes, EIP-1559 was, was a huge help there, but I also think one of the reasons why it was so quick was also because of how much it costs on Ethereum to congest the network. Like the number of, the amount of, of, of fees, I guess, being paid by users, it's it was in the, um, let's see how, how much it was. I think you had said it was $176 million in fees alone. Um, and so I think that's another reason for why even if you do decide to try and like congest the chain in this way, um, it's not easily possible unless there is some kind of an organic demand from users that that are willing to pay, um, who believe that you know that this NFT is worth like a two hundred dollar, um, three hundred dollar, maybe thousand dollar gas fee. Um, and so I think once that mint was over, it it did calm down very quickly because that demand was gone. And and Yuga Labs got criticism uh, on social media for the you know the way that this mint went down. Um, there was some talk that the contract itself wasn't properly optimized. I saw a lot of people sharing other versions. What, what, what was this part of the conversation, Saul? I so yeah, some people mentioned that um, if you had sort of made some modifications to the smart contract code. It wouldn't have been as gas heavy. Um, I tend to agree with Vitalik on this, who had a rebuttal that was pretty popular on Twitter, where uh, basically he said like the TX fee will go up until like the listing price plus the transaction fee is equal to like whatever the market price people think that NFT is worth. So even if you know you optimize the contract, uh, it, it's not really gonna change move the needle that much. The gas price just would have been probably. You know, you say like if it decreased two x and the gas price would have been twelve thousand guay instead of six thousand, um, and I kind of agree with that. I think people really just wanted to hop in on this mint and try to flip this NFT really quickly. You know, this happens with all mints generally in this space, um, and so not sure that would have made a difference, but certainly it was a common criticism that and like the structure of the auction itself. You know, choosing to do a flat fee versus a Dutch Dutch auction or you know any other mitigation tactics there. Yeah, and and they've been so so. Then there was speculation that um, you know, I even see, saw some sort of conspiracy theories that they even wanted it to go poorly so they could justify building their own chain with ApeCoin. Um, I never saw any you know evidence that I thought was credible of that. To be clear, but they are announcing that they are going to sort of move to uh, another chain or an L two. What did they say? So yeah, and I, again, I kind of I don't really believe in the conspiracy one because I think that would have leaked. Because uh, everything tends to leak from them, and so this would be a very odd thing to keep tight-lipped. Um, they did an announcement a couple of days ago that Polygon is going to support. I think it does support actually as of right now, uh, ApeCoin. So any app that uses Polygon can also use an ApeCoin version, sorry, Polygon version of ApeCoin um, in that app. And so they're taking that sidechain approach to potentially uh, easing or increasing the scalability. I think that makes a ton of sense uh, for multiple reasons. Polygon's very popular. Um, it's already integrated in a lot of apps. And also the company that's building the other side metaverse, Improbable, supports Matic Polygon uh, natively. I think that's probably the, the only one, uh, as far as I know from recent research into their tech, that's the only sidechain slash scalable coin that they support. So it makes a lot of sense that on that side. Um, and then there's, there's rumblings within the ApeCoin DAO that... They never discussed going to another chain, um, and so so all of that together leads me to believe, uh, not necessarily support the the conspiracy theory side of this. I think they just made a mistake. I I have to push back a little bit on whether or not this the Yuga Labs debacle with the other side mint was truly an innocent mistake. Like hindsight is twenty twenty. They just didn't know, you know. Um, now that they've they've gone through this, um, just because I I feel like there were many points in which Yuga Labs before this mint even happened recognized that the amount of demand recognized the amount of demand that would that would be generated by this other deed mint, 
Um, and with the whole KYC, knowing how many addresses would be um, participating in this event, knowing that people were thinking, like you said, like 600 ETH um, in terms of, of, of cost for these NFTs. Um, I, I wonder if it was really just like an innocent mistake. Um, I, I can't quite tell what other reason they might have in their back pocket because I agree it's not, um, it's, not, it's not merely like we wanted to stick it to Ethereum. Um, but I think even the, the communication around right after this whole debacle happened, um, talking about it's abundantly clear that you know we have to move off of Ethereum and then having um, Yuga Labs board members tweet out, this is, you know, this is false. Like we've never talked about moving off of Ethereum. Um, I think that kind of communication paradox where some people of Yuga Labs is, is saying one thing and then another part of Yuga Labs is saying another thing, I, I personally wonder if um, there's internal, I guess, division about like the vision forward for, for other land and board apes. And I think that might've caused a lot of this last minute changes in the auction style, um, all this kind of hubbub with the communication um, saying two different things. Um, I wonder if there's kind of like more of like a power grab happening, happening for, for, for what Yuga Labs should be and how they should handle like this 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 product. Well, let's let's not forget that the ApeCoin is controlled by the ApeCoin DAO. I think is what it's called. So Yuga can't technically tell them what to do. Although they granted they own a lot of tokens, so I guess they could put their thumb on the scale, so to speak, and motivate votes a certain way. But it would be very obvious in public, and people it would probably hurt their reputation. So they probably wouldn't do that. Um, no, I think this is just kind of a disorganized, chaotic mess. Um, I don't necessarily see nefarious intentions here. And let's, if you look at the numbers, for instance, uh, there's about 18,000 KYC addresses that had enough ape to buy just one plot of land. That's, that's not a ton of addresses. Um, and so if you're from, if you're Yuga Labs and you see that number, and you also just look at how other metaverse collections perform, Decentraland, Sandbox, their floors are below two ETH. Uh, metaverse plots aren't sexy. You can't make them your profile picture. You can't actually do anything with them. These aren't even actual plots. These are deeds to a plot of land that eventually will one day be built. It's a lot of abstraction and, and future theoretical you know, uh, value there. So I think for a lot of those reasons, they probably weren't expecting this to like blow the doors off because um, it's not another PFP. It's like, it's just a plot of, you know, land that's has a very very high issuance like, even mebits with twenty thousand issuance has never broken really past the 10 eth floor this is like a 100k issuance so i think all of those together makes it i don't know i, I kind of believe them when what they say I, I take it at face value do we know anything about the forthcoming other side metaverse really um just since you mentioned how um you know sort of you know future future uh, like speculative the the concept here is what do we know so there's not a ton of details. I know for the apes that minted, or sorry, that got, that got an airdrop, so separate from the mint, the mint was only for like the outer sort of plots of land, the less desirable ones. Board apes holders got center plots, and then mutant apes got the center ring. Um, so that's like structurally how it looks. Uh, and so it's certainly the land that's closer to the center is worth more for some reason. Uh, it's being built on improbable, and it will allow you to... It's like a game, I think kind of like an RPG type thing where you could use your NFT like your ape or mutant as an avatar in the game and your land has access to different resources. And so these resources were also randomized. Uh, the type of land was randomized and you can use them to do, I, I would assume RPG type stuff, um, but I don't know a ton beyond that because it's, you can't even see like any gameplay. It's just all theoretical. Well, fascinating. I mean, the, this is one of the, as we said at the top, one of the most important and valuable NFT, um, I guess, ecosystems at this point. Yeah. Um, I, and yeah, I wanted to fire off some stats on that. That's great. Um, so Yuga Labs currently, according to CoinGecko right now, if you just look at market cap, which is floor price times issuance, Yuga Labs controls number one, number two, number three, number five, number 10, and number 13, most valuable NFT collections, uh, which is probably 60, 70, 80% of the entire market cap. I don't have to do the numbers on that. Uh, and then the other deeds, which is number five right now, out of thin air, went from non-existent to number five. 
market cap uh, NFT. Just crazy. Wow. Definitely. Um, well, you know, we're going to keep watching the the apes uh, that are bored and I don't know, they drive boats. <laughs> uh, we're going to watch these guys, BAYC. Um, it'll be really interesting to see a lot of different metaverses getting built as well. Um, and you go with the, you know, all the money that they've raised and the IP that they control um, and the size of their ownership uh, in their ecosystem is obviously well poised, I think. Um, especially in a crypto native metaverse um, outcome uh, to be really successful there. So we'll keep watching it. Um, Thanks uh, for all the stats you guys both pulled on this one. Um, (laughs) Let's move on. Let's talk about Solana, um, that very fast blockchain um, that saw a meteoric rise in both usage and value last year. Um, It has suffered yet another outage. And we've talked a lot about this um, internally. So maybe we'll get into some of our sort of discussion on this. But I don't know, Saul, perhaps if you want to give us sort of the, the, the overview on, on what happened last week with Solana's uh, latest outage. Yeah, so we should probably call this episode NFT weekend because this is also NFT related. On Saturday, there was a seven hour outage. Um, the, the source of the outage was bots were trying to win an NFT mint. And this NFT Mint was using Metaplex's Candy Machines smart contract program. So this is just a common backend that uh, minting sites use that handles all the code for distributing the mint. And they have they build their own front end on top of that. Um, and so if you're a bot, all you have to do is just call the mint function and you're going to spam it as much as you can. Because if you spam it with 10 million transactions, you have a higher chance of actually securing the mint for the NFT. And if you're a retail user, you basically have a 0% chance because uh, you're just clicking your mouse versus programmatically doing it. And so what ended up happening is because the way Solana works today, um, it, it takes all of these transactions first first in, first out, um, doesn't prioritize or anything. The, the validators running the network ran out of memory and they crashed because uh, they kept running out of... They, they couldn't keep up with uh, the speed of the chain, so they had to keep forking uh, the blockchain. And then they ran out of memory for all those forks. Uh, because remember, Solana prefers liveness over consistency, which means always adding new blocks versus preventing forks. Um, and so it, it caused an outage in a very similar manner to the one that happened in September with the Grape IDO and Radium. Uh, and so the, the network came to a halt. But you know, in pretty quick manner, the, the validator community within seven hours instituted a, a manual restart of the network and resumed block production at 3.30 a.m. UTC on Sunday, May 1st. So is this, we've been talking a lot about this sort of problem on Solana, um, this favoring of, of liveness and and the sort of design of the blockchain. Is it is it fair to say, and I've been critical of this in our discussions a lot, is it fair to say that, you know, part of its design choices around fixed fees and, and sort of no queue of pending transactions, right? No mempool um, is con- contributing to the this bot activity because this sounds a lot like th- this bot spam sounds a lot like a civil attack to me yes and and this isn't unique to blockchains it's been a problem with the internet since the internet was invented um, Solana's design choices if you think about this you know this term that was coined by a, a blogger named Polyina um, I want to you know credit the the original source but he came up with the you know similar to the scaling trilemma it's a transaction quality trilemma. So you have to choose between spam, censorship resistance, and low fees. So most blockchains choose to be censorship resistant uh, and not have spam. And so they'll have fee markets to handle spikes. So like your Bitcoins and ETH of the world. Solana really, really wants to be a usable blockchain that has consistently low fees. So that's why they have that built in on the protocol. They don't have a fee market. Um, but they, then the issue is they keep running into spam. And so this happened in September, this kind of stress the network heavily during partial outages in January, multiple days. And then most recently this past weekend. Uh, and so they actually have a number of fixes that I, I can get into that was recently posted by the Solana protocol that could address this. Um, and, and the TLDR on that is yes, they're going to use some aspects of fees, but they're not going to be quite as extreme as ethereum or, or uh, you know with with the true fee market and a mempool they're still taking a bit of a hybrid approach and still trying to make their their blockchain as user friendly and low fee as possible in most cases yeah it's 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 such a fascinating question because you know if you go back in the history too of blockchains um and before that right adam back 
the CEO and founder of Blockstream and, you know, who's cited in Satoshi's Bitcoin white paper, he created, he used proof of work um, as a civil resistance mechanism when he created Hashcash, um, which was a way of actually causing, trying to reduce email spam, right? Making the sender of an email um, perform some computation and construct a proof and attach it to the email that could um, that showed that they had done computational work before the email could be delivered. The, the idea, this is one way that Bitcoin also uh, prevents um, civil attacks on mining uh, in the mining process is using proof of work. And the idea is that it's costly to create, but trivial to verify these cryptographic proofs. Um, and, and, and in general, adding transaction fees is core to preventing spam on blockchain networks. It's even actually something that a lot of people have been suggesting to Elon Musk um, on how to improve Twitter and get rid of Twitter spam bots, which are a huge problem, is imposing some kind of fee. So it it does seem to me like one of these sort of fundamental issues that um, Solana must address um, because keeping fees low is great, except if it keeps going down all the time because it gets Sybil attacked by what are otherwise, yes, algorithmic, programmatic uses of the blockchain, but but otherwise, you know, legitimate uses, right, that they want. They want people to be interacting with the blockchain programmatically, but they've got to come up with some way. And 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 I just chuckle because it feels to me like one of those things that, um, you know, they, they you sort of can't jump the shark on this. Like there there isn't, I'm not aware of any other major way to prevent civil attacks other than either making people pay or do work, um, <laughs> uh, right? So we'll have to see something on this. Uh, you know, they've got some some sort of near-term temporary fixes they've been working on, but I do think ultimately they've got to move in the direction of a, of a queue and, and, and a fee market. But what are your thoughts on this, Christine? Yeah, I mean, it's very encouraging to hear that the Solana folks are are learning from these multiple outages and thinking that they will implement some kind of a fee market to address this issue. Curious to know, I mean, I do I do agree that um, these 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 solutions related to fees will help reduce the um, the issue of spam. Going back to that trilemma, we want to keep the low fees and and by introducing some kind of a of a fee market, if not as like aggressive as the ones that are on Bitcoin and Ethereum should help with the, the spam problem. Um, curious to know if those solutions that are being discussed are also going to um, tackle the, the kind of lack of censorship resistance that we're seeing on Solana right now in the way that they respond to um, these, these consistent, um, these multiple spam attacks. Um, one of the, most concerning things that I thought about the Solana outage this time um, was the uh, tweet that kind of went viral showing a, a Discord message where I think it was one of the, the app creators begging Solana validators not to, um, not to blacklist their address. And I, I, it, it's concerning to me that there is even, you know, a, a chat room where you can reach out to, to such a to a sub to a subset of validators and and these validators having the power to kind of address the spam issue by just like blacklisting um addresses that they deem as as being um bad actors in the network and 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 putting out too many transactions or trying to initiate too many transactions um so would love to hear yeah what what are your what are your thoughts on how the solutions that are being proposed might also in address the the censorship resistance issue right so uh, let me unpack this because i think there there's kind of like three categories of solutions here the one you're talking about is the very 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 short term let's just put a band-aid on it really quickly uh which is you basically just block that address from having any connection to the blockchain um it, it's it should be noted that in the documentation this is like considered a absolute last ditch effort and should not be taken lightly and they should be unblacklisted within an hour of being blacklisted. So this is only for like pure absolute spikes um, is the intention. And I don't think this feature will stay forever. I think it's just to help, you know, stop this from happening, you know, tomorrow. Um, it is concerning that it doesn't take that many validators to basically blacklist an entire application from the network. Um, this is also, I think, a problem with 
pretty much all the proof of stake blockchains right now. None of them are really that decentralized yet. And I do think this is not a long-term concern for Solana. But as far as the other categories of fixes, there's the protocol level fixes. And so there's kind of two key ones that Solana is yet to implement, but they will be implemented, implementing soon. Um, one is a combination of, of this thing called Quick, Quick UDP internet connections and stake-weighted transaction quality of service. Basically, what this means is um, validators can kind of have more levers, so to speak, to control the flow and ingestion of data. Because uh, the issue with Solana now is that they just take all of the data with uh, sort of completely, there's no blocking at all happening. There's no way to control it or to prevent certain applications from spamming the network. So these two combination, the, the, these two protocol level changes will allow them to pull that lever and kind of calm down the network a bit. Uh, but this isn't seen to be the main fix. It will help a little bit. Uh, the most important fix is called fee-based execution priority. And so think of this as like, uh, kind of like, a. I think the one of the salon people talked about it as like a neighborhood fee where based on like the application that's seeing the spike in transaction volume, you would need to pay a fee to use that one. But the other types of transactions, you know, maybe DeFi doesn't have a fee, but NFTs suddenly you have to pay to, to get to the top of the stack. Um, that's kind of what will happen. So it won't be like a global fee. Uh, but ultimately, this boils down to users having a way to express urgency for execution of their transactions. Um, and they can add this arbitrary fee and it'll work. Basically, it'll weight that fee against the amount of compute units that a transaction requires and put them to the top. Um, and it'll get 50% of it will be burned and 50% will go to the current block leader, exactly how current Solana fees work. So, so, so that's protocol level changes. And then the final thing that I think is not talked about enough is application changes. So Metaplex has already rolled out an update to their um, APIs where they're adding a 0.01 Solana penalty if any wallet attempts to complete an invalid transaction. So if you're a bot, uh, you're going to get tons of penalties if you're just spamming the mint function because none of those will be considered valid. And so this small amount of logic, it's literally like a few lines of code would probably mitigate this issue a lot. Um, and so I think you're going to see a combination. It's going to be a group effort. You're going to have things like Soul, sort of, uh, sorry, I'm trying to remember the name, but basically applications that can sort of encourage users to use it in the first place. So think like your captures of the world, right? These are already being used by like sneaker drop sites. Um, you have the, the application itself. So Candy Machine will add some code to make it harder for bots to abuse it or penalize them. The protocol like Solana will add some changes. Um, and then finally, you might have something like a Genesis Go, where you might push some of this to a layer two and, and fix it that way. Uh, maybe you'll just change how the mint works and you'll have dynamic pricing. So as people mint, you're kind of moving that secondary spike in price into the mint itself. That would sort of remove the economic incentive to bot. Uh, and, and sorry, I remember now it's sole port. So like that limits the, the bot's ability to participate in the first place. So I think it'll be like uh, a lot of different sort of kitchen sink approaches that will ultimately help this problem. Yeah, that's a lot of things uh, on that list uh, that they are looking at doing. Um, very interesting. They're, they're also trying to thread a needle here, right, to alleviate these types of outages without sort of undermining their core value proposition of speed and low fees. Um, we'll, we'll see if it works. I mean, obviously, we're going to keep looking at it. And I should point out, in a, in a, probably within the next two weeks, maybe sooner, um, Saul is going to release the third in our... Uh, the third report in our Ready Layer One uh, report series, all about Solana. So um, all of this information and discussion will be included in there. So keep an eye out for that. All right, let's get to the final topic here. Um, I'm going to do this one a little bit quickly because uh, this has been such a robust uh, conversation already. Um, I released a report last week. That's Friday. Um, uh, last Friday, so a week ago, on the venture scene in crypto and blockchain uh, in Q1 2022. And this is a report we've released every quarter since Q1 2021 uh, when I joined Galaxy. And we released a big end of year one uh, uh, in January of this year, uh, covering data through Q4 2022. Um, I mean, at the core of this report, I'm just going to run through some of the data points here. I mean, investment in the ecosystem in startups in you know that are, that are pursuing crypto and blockchain products and strategies is at its all time high. I mean, Q4 Q1 
2022 saw more than $10 billion invested by venture capitalists in crypto and blockchain startups. Um, basically, we've had an all-time high in this investment, uh, the money invested metric every single quarter starting with Q1 2021. So five quarters in a row of new all-time highs in money invested. Um, just a couple takeaways from this report. First, um, you know, when we look at it by stage, this is something I like to look at a lot. Where is the money going um, by stage of startup? About half of all the money invested in Q1 2022 went to later stage companies. And that's back up. Um, and that's Series B or later. That's back up from, um, you know, in the 30 percentile range uh, last quarter in uh, Q4 21. Um, we've really seen this oscillate. We've, in general, a longer-term trend, seen a growth in the amount of capital going to later-stage crypto companies. Um, I mean, that that trend line, and you can see this in the report, which is on our website. It's also in our newsletter. Um, it's been, on, a, on an average basis, rising basically since 2016. And, and there's good reason for that. I mean, one, there are there are later stage crypto companies. There there weren't really in 2016, right? And so there's a lot more of them. The industry is much more mature. It shows the growing maturity of the ecosystem. It also shows the enormous amount of of capital um, that's waiting to invest in this space. Um, growth capital, uh, larger piles of capital, right? Um, so there, there's not only more supply in terms of later stage companies, but there's also more demand to allocate from venture capitalists with a lot of money. Um, you know, sort of along the same lines on stage, I mean, when we look at deal count also, I mean, the earliest stage companies, pre-seed companies, right? Brand new startups. The We saw the lowest deal count since basically Q3 2020, which was COVID lockdown, right? The initial COVID lockdown in absolute terms. Um, so there's fewer and fewer earlier stage startups. And, and there's reasons for that. Um, you know, that, that, you know, one is, is obviously that a lot of the investing that happened in 2017 and 18 and 19 and 20 was infrastructure companies, picks and shovels for the crypto market. Um, a lot of that stuff's been built, right? Lending, institutional custody, settlement, compliance, analytics, right? Data, a lot of those companies have already been found, but they're, they've now matured into later stages. Also, it's it's worth noting that, you know, I, I rely pretty heavily on PitchBook for this data set, and we're seeing a lot more money going into things like DAOs and DeFi protocols that don't necessarily show up as well in this data set. So there is a little bit of bias there. Um, but it's also true that these two trends, right, the sort of maturation of the startup ecosystem and also the new entrants that are building entities on chain and maybe issue no equity, um, it highlights the growing maturity broadly, right? Like we're starting to see finally a lot of what Web 3.0, early Web 3.0 founders were promising, which was more on-chain activity in the scheme of things, right? And we've seen an explosion of all L1s and layer twos and all of this. Um, another big point to make is that valuations in the crypto space continue to rise. So while we actually saw a decline in the broader VC market, so all VC deals in Q1 from Q4 2021, um, we saw a decline in valuation, median valuation for all VC, but crypto VC valuations continue to rise. They not only rose quarter over quarter, but the gap um, between all VC and crypto VC continues to rise. That shows that, that that really shows the substantial amount of demand interest from allocators to get into these deals, coupled with the declining you know number of deals. Right, the the deals are actually were down slightly quarter of quarter, but there's still a lot. They're up, but in relation to the amount of capital looking to allocate, right, that ratio is totally out of skew. There's just billions, tens of billions of dollars of dry powder. Um, it seems every day we hear of a new crypto VC fund being founded um, and and sort of a relative dearth of quality new deals. So that's leading to an extremely founder-friendly environment um, still that's still persisting. And you have to wonder, uh, right, and, and what I mean by that is that founders are literally, in, we saw median deal size, the actual amount of money per deal on a median basis um, go up, continue to rise in crypto and actually decline a bit across all VC. Um, in Q1 2022. And, and that 
what that means as a founder-friendly environment is that founders are able to raise more money by selling less equity, right? So that means that they're raising at higher valuations, and that's pushing the price of these companies up. And, you know, I think back to what we talked about with BIMnet, when you start raising rates, right, you increase the cost of capital, you make it less attractive to invest in, in riskier assets. Um, and, and you have to think that if we get to a point over the next several quarters where that becomes really significant, um, rising rates, right, and a declining risk appetite, that we will see a decline both in the in the amount raised, in the median valuation, um, and just and in the total money invested, perhaps over time, or at least a shift on valuation, perhaps back in maybe not all the way in favor of, of venture capitalists, but certainly you know in that direction. That we haven't seen it yet, though, is the big point of this report. Um, and then the other sort of big takeaway is just the. Web3, NFTs, DAOs, gaming, metaverse, this subsector in the crypto space is absolutely on fire in the VC world. Um, Not a majority, but by far the biggest category of deals done in Q1 2022 were in that category, Web3, NFTs, DAOs, metaverse, gaming companies. Um, Something like, I think more than... Oh, I have 41% of all deals done in the last, you know, in the, in the last quarter were in this category, only 13% in trading, exchange, lending, investing, which has historically been the largest sector, even by the amount of capital um, invested, 22% of all money invested went to those web three companies and only 21% went to trading and exchanges. Right. And I point this out because historically speaking, the, you know, when I first was doing VC uh, in, in 2018 um, in this space, it was all picks and shovels. And we used to joke that the only companies that were even unicorns in this space basically were exchanges and Bitcoin mining machine manufacturers. Right. And that was just the reality. Then it wasn't what we necessarily our view of the future, but today that's very much not true to the point where even that big, big category, purely speculating, you know, ap- applications and companies and products that help investors speculate on the value of cryptocurrencies and hold them and trade them and settle them and lend them those companies um, they're not even the majority of capital um, anymore as of last quarter, and they're definitely not the majority of deals. So a very interesting shift happening in sort of the crypto VC landscape uh, that's worth noting. Um, and so, yeah, that's the report. I mean, there's a lot of other interesting stuff in there. I encourage you to check it out. Um, before we drop, Christine, you've got a question for me. Yeah, one cue about um, your thoughts looking forward on where deal count and VC money might flow to. I've been feeling pretty bullish about potentially the merge happening um, likely before the end of this year. How do you see the staking sector of the crypto industry kind of having its boom or, or time to shine with Ethereum moving to, to crypto stake? Do you foresee that kind of becoming a, a bigger slice of the pie um, in future quarters? So staking as a service um, has already been a pretty big sector. Um, and I, you know, the reality is that in the sort of centralized um, centralized startup space uh, uh, for staking, right? So not the on-chain, not the Lidos, not the, you know, whatever types of other, um, you know, decentralized lending pool, staking pools there are, et cetera, just the actual companies. We've actually seen a decent amount of consolidation here, um, acquisitions. Um, and and so I, I don't think, I, I don't know how many big players there really are likely to be there. I think exchanges themselves will be big players there. They already are. Um, but I but it is noteworthy, I think, with Ethereum in particular, right? We've talked about Lido and, and other sort of non-custodial, um, you know, on-chain decentralized or, or some version of decentralized non-custodial staking pools, um, we've seen a lot of growth there. You know, I don't know. I think I think a lot of this value is going to accrue to exchanges because they already hold a ton of assets. They can make it very easy. Um, even just spinning up your own, you know, beacon chain validator or even contributing to Lido is, is really not that easy for for an average person. But just depositing your, you know, your ETH at a at an exchange and asking them to stake it on your behalf, even though you're giving up some of that some of that new issuance that they collect, right, to them as a fee, like it's still pretty easy. This has always been one of the, you know, worries and 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 also criticisms of proof of stake generally is that it would increase the power of centralized intermediaries. And and although something, you know, like Bitcoin proof of work networks, there certainly are large miners and large pools, right? But they don't also control the governance of the network itself. They don't control the block production 
um, sorry, they do control the block production, but they don't control uh, the governance. And and you're, by removing miners from that situation, from that you know governance trilemma um, or triumvirate, actually, I should say, um, you know, you put a lot of power in the hands, a lot more power in the hands of of capital, right? And capital likes to find other capital and pool together. So I hope we see more um, because I I love. You know, I think we all want these networks to be more and more decentralized, but um, I, we haven't seen staking. I mean, r- really right now, the story in crypto VC is DAOs and NFTs and gaming and, and various other types of Web3, right? And, 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 and in these cases, I mean, having just looked at these deals that were done, it was over 600 in Q1 2022. Um, a lot of the Web3 stuff is basically like, can we do this Web2 thing with blockchain, right? It actually feels sort of like the newer iteration of the blockchain not bitcoin era from years ago except now it's sort of like well instead of enterprise private permission blockchain let's sort of see if we can blockchainify other things using you know ethereum and and its competitors and um you know i i I don't i I don't love the term web3 i think a more narrow view of what web3 is which i think should be um using id using cryptographic cryptographic credentials um as your identity rather than sharing your personal information with literally every website you go to, you know, if I order like a, you know, like a garden tool online, I've got to give like my address, my email address, my name, right? Like, is that really necessary? I, I so that's what I would love to see from web three. I don't personally consider it. And we do, we don't for the purposes of categorizing these deals, all of crypto, the way some people say web three is synonymous with crypto. Um, so we're a little bit more exacting when we categorize it that way. That's why it's actually web three slash NFTs slash DAO slash metaverse slash gaming, right? Cause we're not inherently putting those together. Um, but that, that, that was really the story. I think of Q1 2022, I don't know how long it will persist, but there is a ton of capital waiting on the sidelines to allocate. Um, and they have to allocate, right? They can't, you know, for the most part, they can't go back to their LPs and say, you know, Web3 is one of its course. Like now we'd like to do like, you know, I don't know, farm tech or like whatever. Right. They've got to do so they've got to allocate into this space. And that's pretty much their only option. And so it, it's it's really weird. It's hard to know. If, I think I speculated in the report, like, are we in a super cycle for crypto VC? Like, will these deal counts and money invested go down? Like, we just don't know. Um, there's so much money that hasn't been there during prior sort of bearish you know, periods in digital currencies history. Um, so we don't really have a good comp for this. All right, let's get to the quick takes. We've got a couple final things to chat about. Um, some interesting uh, stuff that happened. Uh, let's keep it short and pithy. And as always, I'm looking myself in the mirror when I say that. Um, SEC Crypto Enforcement, their staff, the Enforcement Division staff focused on crypto and cyber activities. They're increasing from 30 uh, to 50 people. Uh, what does uh, anybody have a take on this? It seems like a pretty small increase compared to how much the markets have have grown in the time that they even created that staff of initial 30. Yeah, maybe doesn't even signal a change in strategy like with that kind of uh, uh, increase. Maybe just like they got a backlog. Who, who knows? Um, hey, Kraken is going to create an NFT platform. Uh, anybody have a take on this? I'm going to just say yawn and remember FTX. They tried this. Also, Coinbase, they, they fumbled their launch, so hopefully they don't fumble theirs. <laughs> uh, let's see, ENS domain registrations. These are the sort of uh, human-readable uh, domains, uh, .eth domains you can attach to an Ethereum address. Um, they Registrations have surpassed 1 million cumulative registrations. Yes. Actually, I, the reason for this is uh, there was this big <laughs> sort of push for digits the three digit and four digit domains so people rushed to mint out these collections which is ten thousand and a hundred thousand for the five digit domain so that's kind of why it happened it was a very specific incident but ens is awesome i'm a big fan and okay uh let's see here uh a county in virginia is considering yield farming strategies uh with their you know from their pension systems investments um any thoughts on this I'll, I'll offer one. Um, you know, you got to put money somewhere. Um, you know, we've seen for years, right, allocators moving further on the risk curve. And, you know, I guess you can get yield in DeFi and you can't get it in many other places. It does seem, uh, you know, it, look, I, I think they'd be the first that we're aware of. So, I mean, I, I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to call it risky, but, you know, if the shoe fits. Yield is hard to come by. <laughs> <laughs> you got to look for it, I guess, if you're, if you're hunting for yield. Um 
All right, that's all we have for this week. Thank you, uh, Christine Kim and Saul Kadir. Great conversation on on these topics, BAYC and Solana uh, and the venture stuff. Um, thank you also to Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading for that great overview on the current market positioning and the FOMC and Federal Reserve's uh, rise, uh, raising of interest rates. Follow us on social media. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Join us next week. Have a great weekend. Um, this was Galaxy Brains from Galaxy Digital Research. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.